everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Today we're talking all about electrophysiology and the management of premature ventricular complexes or PVCs as we refer to them throughout the interview. I'm delighted to be discussing things with Dr. Mandeep Bhagava from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio in the USA. He's written a superb Education in Heart article all about the management of PVCs with lots of diagrams and ECGs for you to get stuck into. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So if it's okay with you, Doctor, perhaps we can start by having you introduce yourself for the Heart Podcast audience. Who are you and uh, where do you work? I'm uh, Dr. Mandeep Bhargava. Uh, I'm a staff electrophysiologist uh, and uh, have been practicing uh, for about 20 years at uh, Cleveland Clinic. I'm one of the faculty here in the uh, section of uh, cardiac electrophysiology and pacing in the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine. Uh, I am a clinical and interventional cardiac electrophysiologist, and uh, I've been here all this while. Perfect. And you've recently written uh, an education in heart piece uh, with a co-author, Koji Higuchi, uh, also from the Cleveland Clinic, which is called The Management of Premature Ventricular Complexes. Um, first of all, maybe we can I can jump in by asking you how common are PVCs in the in the population? Sure. So, uh, you know, how common PVCs are in the general population is a question that is best answered about how you look at it, because the larger the frame in which you look for, the more likely that you'll find PVCs. So if you're just looking at 12 DCGs and trying to figure out that if I did 100 EKGs or 200 EKGs, how many of my patients have PVCs, the burden may look very small and your prevalence might be as low as less than 5%. But if you look at the same patient over 24 hours or so, then you might find that uh, almost uh, what is reported as uh, 40 to 70% of people may have PVCs. But I think even that in my personal experience would be a number that is lower than what I would see because if I'm reading holders, I would rarely come across a holder which has no PVCs at all. So having PVCs is a fairly common thing. In fact, there are some situations where people just have absolutely no PVCs in even some inheritable diseases, which is kind of a sinister phenomenon. But uh, just the presence of PVCs, if we look, most people have it. Mm -hmm. So having it is definitely not an abnormality by itself. And is there a kind of upper limit, let's say percentage of heartbeats over 24 hours? Uh, below which you wouldn't be concerned at all? I think that uh, just taking one number in isolation is something that scares me as <laughs> the black and white zone. So uh, in general, uh, everything depends upon uh, what the abnormality is that we are talking about and what the context is. So yeah. the right context, if we make any statement, it can be misguiding both for ourselves and others. But in general... If I have a patient who has no structural heart disease and is concerned about just the number of PVCs, both cross-sectionally about how he looks at himself right now and in the future, I would think that most patients who have a PVC burden of less than 5% are more than likely to have just a benign course. But uh, as the burden of PVCs increases, then the chances that they may have problems with PVCs of one type or the other may be higher. And uh, 
in most patients who have a PVC burden of more than 20%, chances are that sooner or later, they could be at a higher risk of having problems more likely than not to have PVC-induced heart muscle dysfunction or a cardiomyopathy. But again, does not mean that they will have it. Yeah. So anything in between could be a moderate burden. And these are definitions which are uh, not written in stone. These are definitions which are variable in every person's mind based upon how conservative or aggressive you want to be. But in general, I would say that a PVC burden of less than 5% with everything else being the same would be a low burden for me. And you mentioned uh, some groups uh, in which PVCs are generally benign. Could you just highlight to us again? So you said patients with an absence of structural heart disease, a PVC burden is is generally benign or PVCs are generally benign in that group. Sure. So I think how to define whether a PVC benign is probably easiest by finding out which PVCs are not benign. Okay. So most PVCs which are not benign, even a single PVC is not good in that situation. So patients who do not have a structural heart disease and have PVCs from usual sites, and the most common sites, as we know in our experience, are sites from the outflow tract, most often the right ventricular outflow or the summit region of the heart, what it is now called more commonly, or patients who have PVCs from the papillary muscle or fascicles, then when you look at them at the first sight in a patient who otherwise does not have any underlying structural heart disease, you know that more than likely these are benign unless uh, there is a specific setting that you're looking at for those patients. But uh, patients who have PVCs from atypical sites and you say, wow, this is not a usual kind of PVC that I see. Patients who have PVCs which are very broad, suggesting they are either coming from an epicardial site or from within a scar, that is why they're broad because they're engaging the Purkinje system later or slowly or kind of showing you that they are coming from an area of slow conduction. Those are the kinds where you get concerned. PVCs often are also uh, more like uh, not the primary problem, but a marker of some underlying disease. And in situations, if you see that there are PVCs with multiple morphologies, that would be concerning for me. Uh, Again, uh, you know, sometimes PVCs may have very short coupling intervals, and those are the ones which are more likely to cause R-on-T-related phenomena and PVC-induced sustained arrhythmias like ventricular tachycardia or fibrillation. And then again, PVCs which are apparently looking very benign but are in a very big number, then the number itself might make them less benign. Mm. And... uh, all these things uh, are taken into consideration. And if none of these features is present, then you can most often be reassured uh, that uh, patients are probably having PVCs which are benign. Got you. And how, in general terms, do you approach a patient with PVCs? I note in your article a really nice uh, figure, figure one, which is a walkthrough really of the investigations and the way that you classify patients. But Perhaps in the briefest of terms, you could you could give us some high-level thoughts on how you assess a patient who presents to you with, let's say, uh, awareness of PVCs. What are the kind of tests that you do and, and examination and history features that are interesting to you? Sure. Thank you. That's a great question. In fact, uh, <laughs> that's probably the whole <laughs> article uh, in, in, in one question. But no, I think... Uh, 
I, I think it's very important that you ask that question because that way I get to share what exactly is my feeling when I'm entering the room of a patient, when I'm asked to assess a patient with PVCs. And I think that may be helpful if I walk through because that is exactly how I thought through this figure as I made it. Mm. So the moment I'm entering a patient's room, I'm first trying to eliminate the highest risk group of patients where I know that in these patients, I need to be more emergent or urgent in my actions. And those are the patients who are likely to have a high risk of sustained arrhythmias like ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation with PVCs. So patients who have PVC-induced VT or VF, where they've already announced themselves as people who are at risk of having these sustained arrhythmias are most often the patients you see in an inpatient or emergency setting. And your mind is thinking absolutely differently in those situations. Okay. So in those situations, you want to be most aggressive about suppressing the PVCs because every single PVC carries a threat of inducing a sustained arrhythmia whether it is causing a cardiac arrest, whether it is causing an ICD shock. And you want to do a quick assessment to find out what the underlying disease is, because if there is an underlying inflammation, an underlying ischemia, an underlying myocardial pathology itself that needs to be assessed even more emergently than the PVC itself, you want to rule out those things at the very earliest. Uh, and those patients, if you think that there is nothing else you can do other than suppressing the PVCs, you want to do that at the earliest. And again, if those patients have a monomorphic PVC, I kind of think that it is best to strike when the iron is hot and you quickly take them to the lab and ablate them because that is the best way to get rid of them. So that is one small section that I have in that figure. Everything else you can kind of think through. And when I'm entering a patient's room in the office setting or an outpatient setting, as you may call it, then as I am understanding their symptomatology and their clinical profile, I'm looking at things like I look at everything in medicine. Is this a patient where I can make a change in his quality of life? Or is this a patient I can make a change in his quantity of life or survival as we like to call it in medicine? So the patients where PVCs can actually cause an impact on their survival, if we exclude the first group that we've already talked about, then we know that in cardiology for us, the biggest prognostic indicator is the ejection fraction itself. So patients who have a PVC in the setting of a reduced ejection fraction for me are a different set of people where I am thinking about treating them one way or the other, regardless of their symptoms. But in patients who have a preserved ejection fraction and don't have any underlying structural heart disease that puts them at risk of mortality from other issues like arrhythmias or increase their risk of heart failure, it is less likely that I'm going to make an impact on their survival by treating PVCs one way or the other. So then if they're already feeling good, I can't make them feel better. So I'm most interested in seeing what their symptoms are. And this is where it's very important to see whether the symptoms are truly related to the PVCs, because I know patients can have symptoms and I know patients can have PVCs, but this is where the art of medicine lies in trying to make sure that you establish whether there is a marriage between the symptoms and the PVCs, because somebody with PVCs can have shortness of breath and somebody with PVCs can have COPD and COPD can cause shortness of breath. Mm -hmm. But this is where you have to figure out whether you're making that right assessment. And that can be sometimes challenging. So in the patients who have a reduced ejection fraction, 
Again, it's important to see whether they have the PVC as the only cause of their reduced ejection fraction, which I have kind of tried to put into the category of PVC-induced cardiomyopathy. And those are the patients where they're less likely to have any underlying scarring and more than likely they just have the PVC causing the heart muscle dysfunction. And if you can revert that initiating factor, which is the PVCs, most of them are likely to either have a significant improvement or even normalization in their LV function. Or there may be patients where PVC is just adding fuel to the fire and the fire is already existing because of an underlying cardiomyopathy, whether it is ischemic, non-ischemic, and where it is important to treat for those situations, whether it is a previous scar or ischemia or a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy or inflammatory or infiltrative diseases. But the addition of PVCs to the mix has given us the opportunity to reverse one more reversible factor, which can at least help them feel better or help the rest of the management have an incremental benefit above and beyond the usual what is called as guideline-directed medical therapy, which I have tried to label as PVC-aggravated cardiomyopathy. Yeah. And in those patients, uh, you cannot sometimes completely reverse the cardiomyopathy, but you can significant help in that equation by managing those PVCs. And in those patients, if you have a high burden of PVCs, which you may look at clinically depending upon the patient's status, whether you want to label it as 10% or 5% or 20%, it would make sense for me to be more aggressive in suppressing the PVCs with one modality or the other. But in the patients who have a preserved or normal ejection fraction, I'm really looking for symptoms most often because otherwise, if they are feeling good, then by trying to intervene, whether it be by drugs or an ablation, there is a higher chance I can hurt them rather than help them. But if they are having symptoms, then again, for most patients who have a focus which is likely to be amenable to be ablated because of its proximity with catheters or its approachability with catheters or a safe location. Or sometimes a lot what matters is the patient's preference because every person's attitude, his risk tolerance, his frustration with the symptoms is different and his understanding of the risks and benefits is different. So I think there it's very important to have what we now use this very commonly as a phrase called shared decision-making. Mm -hmm. And there, it makes sense to suppress them and if they are symptomatic. And their understanding the symptoms is important because either patients can have specific symptoms where they can tell you that they're feeling their heart skipping beats or palpitations, but most patients don't have that. They have non-specific symptoms, which is wake fatigue or tiredness or shortness of breath. And that often can be a challenge because the only way to prove it is in hindsight, where you show an improvement by suppressing or eliminating the PVCs. But that's where it's a clinical judgment and experience that helps you that you rule out other things and you look at the patient's conditioning level and what you would expect that profile of patient to be achieving anyway and see if there is a mismatch which is being caused by the PVCs. So that is how I would look at things when I'm looking at things in an inpatient or an outpatient setting. So I'm not sure how helpful you find that, but uh, I hope uh, that is able to give some direction. No, no, it's really helpful. And uh, I'll make the paper open access for a few weeks after the podcast uh, comes out and people can, can take a look at that diagram, the way that you walk through. Uh, we didn't even mention the many tests that are also often used, Holter monitoring, of course. Uh, cardiac MRI increasingly but no that's really interesting to see that 
Can I just ask one one question about how PVCs can affect uh, left ventricular function? Do we understand any more about that, a high burden of PVCs inducing a cardiomyopathy? Any idea of the, the pathophysiology there? Sure. Uh, I actually uh, uh, think that a lot of these are postulates based on what we know from animal data or where we have gone and try to create a PVC-induced cardiomyopathy either by pacing uh, and things like that. And a lot of these are uh, postulates indirectly. But, uh, you know, the way I look at it is that I think that there are some hemodynamic factors, some cellular factors, and some what we may call as autonomic factors. But hemodynamically, you know, it's to some extent like what any tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy is, where we first thought, oh, there has to be a tachycardia like an atrial fibrillation or atrial tachycardia all the time causing a cardiomyopathy. But soon we realized that there is a set of patients who have atrial fibrillation who have a controlled ventricle rate and still have a cardiomyopathy. So the alteration in the diastolic intervals, the alterations in the diastolic filling, uh, whether that is causing changes in wall thickness or alteration of blood flow regionally or globally, uh, a lot of these things have been thought to be responsible for what may cause changes in stress and strain and contribute to the cardiomyopathy. A big part is also thought to be from interventricular and intraventricular dyssynchrony because uh, definitely uh, in our experience, we would see that most patients who have PVCs, which have a more of a left bundle-like pattern, just like patients with RV pacing and left bundle branch block, tend to have a higher chance of having cardiomyopathy, not to say that patients with right bundle branch block cannot have it at all. I've seen a fair amount of those too. So these are a lot of the hemodynamic uh, alterations which may be responsible for causing uh, LV dysfunction induced by uh, PVCs. Uh, at a cellular level, it is thought that you know all these changes in, uh, and variability in the diastolic filling lead to changes in calcium dynamics, uh, changes in the sarcoplasmic reticulum, or changes related to the CMP induced pathways, which may cause calcium accumulation and changes in contractility regionally and globally, and that may be responsible for that. And then there are some thoughts about the autonomic dysfunction being involved. So a lot of this data comes from animal research and postulations and thought I, I think this is what makes maximum sense to me. Mm, it's fascinating, isn't it? And the way, as you say, it links in with with atrial fibrillation, even with reasonably well controlled rates, you you know, one does see cardiomyopathy occurring in those patients too. Let's um just for the last bit of the talk, let's talk a little bit about uh, ablation and, and drug therapy and perhaps how you weigh up in an individual patient whether to start with antiarrhythmic drug or go straight for an ablation. What are the factors that uh, are important to you making that decision? I think uh, a lot of that decision is based on, uh, I think when I start from the patient's perspective, I'm looking at three things. One is, what is their frustration with the symptoms? Or what is the level of LB dysfunction that we are dealing with or sustained arrhythmias we are dealing with? Uh, the second is, what is their understanding of the risks and benefits of each situation? You know, every patient has a different level of understanding, a different level of preference, a different level of uh, involvement they have in the decision-making. Some patients like to have a more passive approach and want you to make the whole decision, just as what you would do if you were in that situation, that would be the thought in your mind for them. 
but there are some patients who more proactively want that they have a preference and they want to do one thing or the other where you have to approach the same thing differently. And the third thing is what is the risk tolerance, you know? So mm -hmm. some patients have a very, very high threshold for any invasive therapy and some patients have a very low invasive therapy. So when I'm looking at them, I'm predominantly seeing what are my contraindications in this situation? Okay. What are the things that I should not be doing? Mm. So for example, when I'm looking at drugs, I'm already seeing that, hey, listen, if this patient has coronary disease or a significant structural heart disease, I don't have the opportunity to use the class 1C drugs. So mm -hmm. why even think about it? Right. But if I have a patient who has bad renal uh, function, why should I even think about whether I can use sotalol or not? You know, So those things are already falling off the plate. Or if somebody has contraindications to a class three or a murderon-like drug. So then, you know, it makes it easier for me if I can already take things off the table because I know that antiarrhythmic drugs are my choices. Cath ablation is my choice. Beta blockers, calcium channel blockers are my choice. So when I'm leading, when I'm dealing with a high risk situation, like a PVC induced VT or VF or a PVC induced cardiomyopathy, my threshold to think about an ablation is very low. Yeah. So then I'm quickly seeing what am I dealing with as far as the PVC morphology is concerned. If I'm dealing with a PVC morphology, which is monomorphic, all coming from one focus, if I'm dealing with PVCs, which are a large amount, makes it easy for me to map them. And there I have a bigger bang for the buck because especially if it's an approachable situation, it is not epicardial, not mid-myocardial, uh, then, you know, or if I'm dealing with a situation which is, uh, I, I think I mentioned it, PVC-induced VTVF or cardiomyopathy, yeah. then I'm very quickly thinking of an ablation. In those situations, most often I'm telling the patient that I would recommend an ablation, but I would not do it if they say no. Yeah. On the other hand, if the LV function is completely normal and the patient has a very high burden and is symptomatic, then I want him to know that time is on his side mm -hmm. and that he can experiment it one way or the other based on what he finds is reasonable. And that uh, if it's a PVC which is coming from the outflow, which may have a slightly better chance of responding to beta blockers and they want to try it, no problem. I would tell them not to expect the sun and the moon from that, but it doesn't hurt. Their LV function is fine. They are symptomatic or they have PVCs. It's a low risk drug. I have a low threshold to use it. If it's coming from the fascicles, for example, and they want to use a calcium channel blocker or they want to go from beta blocker to calcium channel blocker, play around with it, no problem. But if they want to use an antiarrhythmic drug, then I'm exposing them to the proarrhythmic risks of an antiarrhythmic drug. I'm exposing them to the proarrhythmic risks of things like hypothyroidism or, you know, a flecainide toxicity and things like that. Then I really want to be very assured that they are the substrate who is least likely to be harmed by an antiarrhythmic drug and that they truly have symptoms which are related to the PVCs. Yeah. And if they truly have symptoms and understanding the risks and benefits, they want to proceed with an ablation, no problem. If they have a PVC morphology, which I think I have a very low chance of getting successfully without risks like a parahysian PVC or an epicardial or a pap muscle PVC, I would have a higher threshold to offer an ablation. 
and they want to try drugs, fine. If they don't want to try drugs and are very strongly wanting an ablation by their personality, then I may go for an ablation directly. So I think uh, it is uh, these two, three principles that I have in mind and not just algorithms mm. that so I, I find all this data is important for us to assimilate so that we can know what our armamentarium is, but I think it has to be used logically and individualized to every patient. That is what I think is most important. I mean, I think that's a re that's really good advice for almost any area of medicine, right? Shared decision-making, risk versus benefit. Um, absolutely, completely agree with you. And just a final question just to finish on. Um, is there anything you'd like to share about perhaps any new antiarrhythmic drugs or new ablation techniques that you're aware of uh, from being immersed in this area? Anything that listeners should listen out for over the next couple of years that might uh, change practice? You know, in the last 25 years that I've spent in cardiology or a little more, I have to say that I have not seen many antiarrhythmic drugs evolve. <laughs> 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 Pretty much my armamentarium currently seems to be limited to what I started off with 25 years ago. <laughs> That's the depressing thought. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. So I, I don't see many antiarrhythmic drugs which have come up because if you look at what options we have, they've never been great and I've not found anything greater. In fact, in all these years, the only new drug I've seen has been dronedoron, which also is not any promise or incrementally beneficial. So most often, as far as antiarrhythmic drugs are concerned, I, I kind of look at contraindications in my mind that if this patient does not have this, 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 or this, then these are my options. And in general, I try to go from the least toxic to the more toxic. And in general, you know, if a patient does not have a structural heart disease, I would use something like a 1C, like flecainide or propafenone, or uh, then consider either sotalol or amiodarone. In general, I don't find sotalol, to be honest, very effective, especially for PVC. Sometimes uh, helps with ventricular arrhythmias, uh, but not uh, sustained arrhythmias, but not with PVCs itself. And I think amiodarone is probably most often our only option in patients who have uh, existing LV dysfunction. Um, as far as newer drugs are concerned, that's why I don't see, uh, at least in my mind right now, uh, a lot that I'm looking forward, uh, you know, uh, when I wake up tomorrow morning. Uh, ablation, I have to say that uh, there are a lot of changes that have happened in ablation, which have really impressed me even over the years that I have been doing ablations. And uh, that have made ablation techniques safer, more effective. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, one thing that I find very useful in the EP lab is the use of the intracardiac echo. I'm a big fan of using intracardiac echo because real-time visualization, because, you know, as electrophysiologists, cardiologists, you know that our only eyes are the x-rays, you know. Mm. When you get to see things like the way a surgeon gets to see, you can't beat it. So I think uh, the closest that we come to that is the uh, intracardiac echo and obviously the electroanatomic mapping systems, which have made it easy to create a virtual heart outside and kind of look at it and how your catheter moves around it. I think two other very important uh, inventions I've seen that have made a big difference in the safety and efficacy of catheter ablations is the fact that now we have transducers at the tip of our mapping and ablation catheters, which can give us the contact force. So it helps us understand the tissue 
uh, catheter interface better. It yeah. helps us make it safer not to put too much pressure on the catheters to reduce the risk of perforation. And the fact that we can use irrigated tip catheters, which helps us give more effective, deeper lesions. So, you know, you can often reach the mid-myocardium or sometimes even the epicardium from the endocardium or vice versa. So these are a few things which I think have been very important. But then, you know, you can integrate images from the electron to the MAC to the echo, the echo to the CT. Uh, CT and MRI have become so good in defining scars or already telling you whether there is a correlation with what you see on the morphology of the PVC and what you see on the uh, imaging things. Uh, so I think all those things have made it very fascinating because it just gives you more conviction in what you are doing. So you're able to take the same step with a little more boldness and conviction. Mm -hmm. And that lowers your threshold to offer therapies to more and more people uh, with more confidence. Perfect. Well, that's a, a really fascinating um, discussion with you, Dr. Bhargava. Thank you so much for your time. As I say, I will make the paper open access for a few weeks after the podcast comes out so everybody can enjoy it. And uh, yeah, thank you very much indeed for your, for your time and discussing this with me today. Thank you.